Hey, everybody. Good to be with you today. It is the first Sunday of Advent. We've got one month left of 2020. If you're brand new to church, welcome this whole experience. Uh, we want to, we call ourselves sanctuary because we want this place to be safe place and a sacred place, a place where you can journey and wrestle with truth and goodness and beauty uh, as we're all trying to make sense of what it means to become uh, apprentices of Jesus. Uh, Advent, you may not know, is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. So these four weeks are marked by waiting and expectancy. Um, it's almost like time travel. We sort of go back and remember this moment in history right before uh, Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, and so there are these themes that get touched on throughout Advent, uh, hope and peace and joy and love. And so we're going to be circling these things, especially joy, over the next couple of weeks uh, as we prepare to bring 2020 to a... Um, hopefully restful close. So would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this time. Uh, however strange it feels, Lord, to be engaged in a church gathering, you know, through a screen or maybe gathered with a few people in our homes. Uh, Lord, we trust that you, um, we trust because we've been seeing it over the last seven, eight months, Lord, that you are moving, that you are bringing life, that you are healing, that you are restoring, you are bringing rest. Um, Lord, you are using your people to join you in the work of renewal and restoration, Lord, in our world. And so we just thank you. And so as we often pray, we pray that there be, um, you give us some expectancy in our hearts. we will be ready to receive from you whatever you have as we open up your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So throughout history, the Christmas story has deeply, deeply resonated with people, specifically people who are on the margins, people who have been kicked down, people who are fatigued, people who are dealing with despair. Uh, it's been a go-to narrative for those that have um, been enslaved, uh, for those that have found themselves under oppression. And so I love every year asking, this, asking myself the question, why is this story still hanging around? Now, a good story, a story that resonates, a story that like still, still, like it, it, it has magic to it. It still captures our imagination. Those sorts of stories uh, are usually the ones that we can find ourselves in. It's places where we find hope or where we find joy or where we find wonder or where we find healing. Uh, and so today I want to begin 2020 by asking, where do you find yourself in this story? So some background. Around the year zero, uh, the world was ruled by uh, the Caesars, by Rome, uh, specifically Caesar Augustus. He referred to himself as the son of God. Uh, people would sing hymns to him. Uh, he regarded himself as the ruler of the earth. He had high priests. You could offer incense to him. You could receive the forgiveness of sins. He was the divine mediator between heaven and earth. Uh, there's a phrase that he made popular, which was, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Caesar. Another go-to phrase was, Caesar is Lord. He believed that he brought about peace and prosperity 
to all of humanity. Now, at the time of the Christmas story, the world was unified, um, sort of. It was unified by this sort of peace through power, not unlike much of the world today. You paid tribute uh, to Caesar, you paid tribute to the Roman military, or you would get slaughtered or imprisoned. One of Caesar Augustus's generals, Cassius, enslaved thousands for not pledging allegiance to Caesar. There was exorbitant taxes that were there to conquer more of the world. All sorts of revolutionary groups were rebelling around this time or just before this time. Uh, people rising up. Uh, this was when cru the crucifixion was invented. Uh, many have argued this is the cruelest way humanity has ever cooked up to kill another person. Um, there's a story of a town, Sepphoris, uh, uh, where 3,000 people were crucified at one time just to send a message. This is how Caesar Augustus ruled. This was done in the name of peace. Now, when Caesar would conquer a new land, he had to have a strategy for how to rule these people um, because he was back in Rome. So how am I going to rule these people up close? So what he would do is find a local king who would rule on his behalf, uh, popularly called like a puppet king. In the context of the Christmas story, we have Herod. So Herod is this ferocious warrior uh, who has this rich history of his own. He is loyal to Caesar, ruling in his place in this land where the Hebrews, where the Jewish people resided. Herod ruled for 40 years. Uh, he had one of his sons, just to give you some context of just how, what a stand-up guy this is, uh, he was. He had uh, one of his sons killed in the family pool because he was suspicious uh, that his son was going for some kind of power grab. He had one of his wives executed. He was famous for slaughtering religious leaders uh, who did not fall in line. There's this one well-accounted-for story uh, where Herod... Uh, being near his death, knowing that he was so hated, he filled a stadium with some of the most influential Jewish people, barricaded the doors, and he said, when I die, kill them all. So that when I die, on the day that I die, there will be weeping in the streets. This guy's a maniac. One other important note. Herod, Caesar, Roman Empire charged you huge taxes. So in Israel, people's incomes were being taxed upwards. Some scholars think of like 80, 85%. People were losing their property. There was severe poverty in many parts of the land. Many would rent themselves out actually as day laborers. So if you're new to the scriptures and you're new to the Christmas story, um, this group of people who find themselves under this oppression of the Roman Empire, these Hebrew people, their whole story is that they are the people of God set apart. They were meant to be a blessing to the world. And yet, of all the promises they have of this rich, rich history, they find themselves under the boot of the Roman Empire, having lost their promised land, and they are without a Messiah. They are without a king. So as you can imagine, what kicked in culturally in this tribe at this time was a profound sense of despair. Is Herod always going to be on the throne? The last couple hundreds of years, uh, all of their poetry and literature uh, spoke to this idea that they had been so disobedient as a people and not cared for the poor and not done what God had asked them to do and made idols that God had essentially, or what they kind of felt was God had just distanced himself from them. There was this uncertainty that was made worse by the Roman oppression. Are the rich always going to get richer? Are the poor always going to get poorer? 
See, to understand the Christmas story, we have to take a look at this historical context and appreciate that this was what life was like. God, if you're so good, why is Herod still on the throne? If you're so good, I don't know, what would you put in there? Like, if you're so good, why cancer? If you're so good, why depression? If you're so good, why divorce? If you're so good, why? Their questions were the questions of much of human history. Imagine selling your land that you've had in your family for generations. You're like, God, I'm just trying to do all the right things. Why this? So I I wanna blur the lines a little from the Christmas story to our current moment. Maybe some of their questions are some of your questions. From this emerging sense of fatalism and this emerging sense of doubt came this despair. God, when are you gonna show up? Or as the psalmist writes, how long? How long? How long is it gonna seem like everything is falling apart? Maybe a few of us know this question like intimately right now. Why is the world so unfair? Why is this happening? Or maybe we know why. And we're like, why can't I get out of my own way? Why can't I thrive like somebody else is thriving or seems to be thriving right now in the midst of all of this? Uh, In Luke 2, uh, like the beginning of the Christmas story, one of the um, longer accounts, Luke 2.25, we read about a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. Like he was dialed in. And he was waiting, it says, for the consolation of Israel. Like he was waiting for hope to show up. Simeon is a representative of a whole people whispering, where are you? So where do you find yourself in the story? Where do you find yourself? I want us to just take a moment before I continue to actually reflect on that question. Where are you in this story? Maybe some of your your questions or your fears or your struggles are personal. Maybe they're relational. Maybe they're societal. Are you waiting right now for anything? Where do you find yourself? Take a minute and then we'll keep going. Christmas story. Christmas story is about this announcement of the Messiah, the one who's going to set all things right. God among us who will kickstart a new era of history. The story emerges to a paralyzed people in the grip of despair. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, is told, do not be afraid. She's told, you will give birth to a son. She is told he will reign forever, that his kingdom will never end. Like no big deal, normal things that are spoken over your pregnancy. According to the scriptures, God reveals himself to a very young 
very poor woman. Not a king, not a president, not a PR firm. So as surprising as this seems at first glance, this is actually completely consistent with God's character. Over and over again, God has the habit of using the most unexpected kinds of people. An angel comes and essentially says, Caesar is going down. Jesus will be a different sort of king who will rule a different sort of kingdom. Now, Mary visits her friend Elizabeth, who is also miraculously pregnant. There's this amazing confirmation moment that everything God said uh, was true is actually true. And then Mary breaks into a song. This song is traditionally called the Magnificat, and I want to read this to you. And we're going to leave it up on the screen for a bit. This is our text for the day. You can read with me. My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary then stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. She says, this is God, my savior, right? She's referencing a God who's involved in human history, who's not detached, not a force, not an energy, a God who's dealing in concrete reality. She's talking about a God who's gonna deal with Caesar and Herod, right? She's using strong, revolutionary, charged language. She's talking about scattering the proud and bringing down rulers from their thrones and lifting up the humble and sending the rich away empty. She's talking about condemnation of those who exploit and manipulate and control others. Now, if you had just heard the term like Mary's song, if I'd opened up the sermon today and be like, hey, we're going to start with Mary's song. We're going to read that. That's going to be our text. You might be tempted to think that this sounds like something that grandma would stitch on a pillow. But right after reading this, this is like, this is punk rock. This is revolutionary music. Thomas Cahill, uh, the scholar, calls this Mary's song, the Magnificat. He says, the most muscular piece of celebration poetry in all of ancient literature. This song claims that corrupt systems are about to get seriously disrupted. So what is she ultimately saying here, singing here? I think she's simply saying that this Roman power is temporary. Or maybe you could say it like this, dehumanizing power is temporary. This isn't the first time they've encountered a force like this, the Egyptians, the Babylonians before them. She's saying there is a power at work greater than the temporary power of corruption. I've seen what the most powerful people can do, and it's not a big deal if God is involved to take us back to Sunday school. It's no match for God's strength. This is a defiant, 
revolutionary story of a minority oppressed ethnic group that's been stepped on long enough. And among them, a young girl comes and reminds them of who their God is and what he's up to. This is Christmas. Now, later in the story, when Herod gets word of this new king, he starts killing uh, children because this is what that sort of power does, which gets me thinking about how is the world made better? We see a contrast right here in the middle of this story, or I should say at the beginning of Jesus' story. Violence or sacrificial love? We see immediately the, the, uh, the temporary and fragile nature of this sort of power over. This is why Herod is threatened by rumors of a baby king. Too often, we take oppression, we take that boot that's on our neck, or we just take that circumstance that's beating us down. We take that unhealthy pattern that's developed in our life and we say, it's just how life is. And the Christmas story charges in and says to hell with despair. The power of the story is that anyone who has ever been in that spot can trust that in Jesus, this is all temporary. And this is good news. As the angels sing uh, in the story a little later on, they say, this is, we've come to um, give you good news of great joy. They announce this whole Jesus thing coming on the scene here, this Messiah showing up. That whole Mary's song, this is good news of great joy. Not happiness, but joy. Because joy is different, right, than happiness. Joy is not the elimination of pain. Joy is changing the way that you view everything. Joy reframes the whole thing. Joy is what happens when we encounter true hope. And hope in the Jesus tradition is the patient and trustful willingness to live without closure, to live without resolution, and still be content, to still be filled even with joy because our satisfaction is now at another level and our source is beyond ourselves. Christian hope is the confident expectation that God has got this. The Christmas story announces peace and hope and joy and love into a mad and despairing and cynical world. The Christmas story is a story that reminds us of whose kingdom will ultimately last. It was good news then. It's good news now. This is why we repeat this refrain often. Christ has come. Christmas. Christ is coming. He continues to come via the Spirit and into our lives, and Christ will ultimately come again. I know Herod and Caesar are ruling, but that's not the last word. And it won't happen all at once because my kingdom is born out of sacrificial love and not power, love and not coercion. So be patient like a mustard seed and begin to walk in the way now that leads to abundant life and joy. God's will God's will for these peoples, for their freedom and their liberation, their liberation from Rome, but also we learn their liberation from sin and the systems that sin corrupts. God is in the business of setting people free. God is revealing just how valuable you are to him. This is what comes out for me in the Christmas story. Like this is just how valuable God, like how he sees me, even in my broken condition. 
So if ordinary people are valued by God, then maybe, just maybe, ordinary people can value themselves. Christmas, this is a story of a God who shows up to people like you and me and whispers, I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten. Mary says at the beginning of her song, right? She says, he has been mindful of me. How good is that? Anyone need to hear that today? Like he's been, he's been mindful of you. He has not forgotten you. Anyone here need to be reminded that Herod doesn't have the last word? Anyone need me to say, um, just to remind you, like, I know how the story ends. Or as Dr. King put it, like, I've been to the mountaintop. This isn't the end. Do you or does someone in your life have a growing sense of fatalism? I would understand if you did. But nothing's ever going to change. Really, how long are we going to be in this? Even when it goes back to normal, like what does that even look like? This low-grade despair, this is what sneaks in for me. I'm like a horribly optimistic person. Just everything, like my propensity is like up and to the right, up and to the right, up and to the right. Like it's going to get better. It's going to get better. But there's like low-grade despair that can start to kick in that you wouldn't call despair because it doesn't feel that overwhelming at first. It just starts to sneak in and says, I guess today... Tomorrow is going to be exactly like today. It sneaks in through the back door and it begins to dull our wonder and dull our imagination and dull our openness and dull our faith. As followers of Jesus, we believe God is the God of history. The same God is still at work here today. We as followers of Jesus at Sanctuary Church believe that this Jesus is our only hope. We believe that the ache that every single one of us feel deep down, the ache that whispers something's not right with the world, that ache doesn't have the last word. And we believe this because we've seen God save and free and liberate and comfort time and time time again and we've seen the end of the story everything being made new everything's going to be in its right place Dr. King saw it Mandela saw it Mother Teresa saw it Augustine saw it Fred Rogers saw it Helen Keller saw it Bishop Tutu saw it Frederick Douglass saw it I think that those that endure a hardship like those folks they usually see it first the end of the story, breaking in right here and right now. Pray with me, Lord. I am coming before you on behalf of friends and family, folks from around the city and around the region, and I'm learning like around the country who are tuning in. I'm asking, Lord, on their behalf, Lord, that you, God, would um, bring comfort and rest, hope and peace and joy. God, 
that those that need to be reminded of your saving grace, Lord, would be reminded. And I pray, Lord, that those, um, those that are new to all of this, I pray, Lord, for those that um, find themselves filled with uncertainty and doubt about who to trust, about what to trust. God, that they would draw near to you. For we believe, Lord, your promise that those who draw, you draw near to those who draw near to you. And so, God, as we go to um, the bread and the cup, as we come to the communion table, might we find healing and rest for our souls. In your name we pray. Amen.